Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. A special guest today are Jolanta Szymańska and Daniel Szeligowski from Polish Institute of International Affairs that published recently an edited volume, a book that addresses the EU's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and speaks at some length about various facets of the relationship between the European Union and Ukraine. It's, it's, it's great to have you both on the podcast. I think this has been much, much overdue in, in, in some way. I want to start with a broad question, if I may. I hosted at a public event last week a, a high-ranking European EU diplomat from the External Action Service, and I tried to gauge the sort of sense of urgency around questions of Eastern European security and and about how Europe was preparing for the contingency of possible failure in America's role in in, in helping Ukraine win on the battlefield and provide long time security arrangements for Ukraine. And it, I mean, I, th- I think people like us at this point in time are quite panicked, and I would expect the Europeans to be even more panicked because they are much closer to you know, everything that's happening. Yet that was not exactly the sense I, I got from this otherwise very thoughtful and well briefed gentleman. And what's your sort of sense of how much sort of sense of urgency there is among among policymakers across European capitals, especially in Eastern Europe, as they are sort of bracing for a you know lengthy war, possibly without Americans by their side? Well, maybe I will start then. Jolanta Szymańska, head of European Union program at the Polish Institute of International Affairs. Maybe general remark is that we have, of course, different feeling of emergency when it comes to East part of the European Union and the Western part. I think the urgency we can already feel very well in the Baltic states and of course in Poland and currently we can see the set of visits of Polish Prime Minister and Minister on Foreign Affairs enhancing European leaders to strengthen cooperation in the field of security and defense. So you can imagine that the field of risk coming from also American elections are really enhancing leaders from the eastern part of the European Union or central eastern part uh, of the European Union to really stimulate this discussion inside the European Union about our strategic autonomy or however we call it, at least to strengthen our defense sector, that's for sure. And there's also the feeling that the war will last for a a long time and that we actually made just the first part of our job and we actually can say that we did it quite well evaluating this response from the start of the full-scale invasion. We can say that we made it probably better than we had expected but still the hardest part is coming and and we feel the state of emergency but of course not in every capital of the European Union, this feeling is strong. Just to give you an example, the best and the, the most visible examples, of course, the Hungary and Terorban, with 
completely different view on security challenges and the role of Russia in Europe. But generally speaking, I think that the, the feeling is stronger and stronger. Let, let me jump for a moment and add a couple more sentences to what Yolanta already said. So uh, if we are looking at the European Union as a collective entity, and so surely we do have differences within uh, different member states. But basically, we feel this sense of urgency, but urgency is relative. So there, there are things that can be done pretty quickly in the short term, but there are uh, the other things that, that can be done only in the medium or in the long term. And this is why we see this division of labor. This is why we see that in this longer term, we need, at least for the moment, bridge the gap together hand in hand with the United States. What we can do pretty quickly now, it is still to mobilize the public opinion in Europe, to mobilize those in Europe who are, who have been hesitant uh, regarding Ukraine. And I think we did a good job. And so if you look at the European Union, we did the job with the, with approving the uh, 50 billion package for Ukraine. This is something for the short term and opening the negotiations with Ukraine in terms of uh, Ukraine's uh, membership in the European Union. So again, this is something that, that could have been done and something that was done now in the short term. If we look at the longer term, the problem or the gap is with the ammunition, with the long-term missiles, with air defense missiles, so basically the, the hard stuff that, that should go to Ukraine. And here they have problems, honestly speaking, in Europe. So we switched to the much, much quicker defense production. But now in the, this short term, there is a need for the United States to step in and fill the gap before we are fully prepared to produce 24 hours per day in Europe. For instance, in Poland, we are already doing it in three shifts. So to, to some extent, we doubled, we tripled our defense production, but it takes time. It takes time to relaunch the, the infrastructure. And this is something that, that we need the United States uh, for the moment. So this is why I, I wouldn't say that we are panicked. And, and I wouldn't say that we should be panicked. But giving this, this sense of urgency, of course, we are looking now at the, at the United States. What was the situation in the Senate? What's the situation in the House of Representatives? What will be the, the, the state of the first with the with next supplemental for, for Ukraine? This is absolutely crucial now. You now, I would just say that I wasn't recommending panic as a as a strategy, but but I was certainly recommending you know taking a close look at political developments on this side of the Atlantic, which I think you know like whatever sort of metric, whatever signal you sort of look at, I think they all are pointing in the direction of less American involvement and less reliable American involvement in Europe in the years ahead. And I think there is a you know great deal of need on on the side of the Europeans to sort of you know internalize that reality and act accordingly, and rather than think that. You know, we can somehow wing it like we did over the previous Trump term. Let me throw this out for everyone. Do we really believe that, say, Germany, and Germany in particular, is responding to the dangers of the moment in an adequate way? I mean, it looks different on different days, I suppose. It's very difficult to tell, but I'll just ask people whether they are convinced that the Zeitenwende will amount to the kind of rearmament that would be necessary even if the United States does not fulfill President Trump's threat to further withdraw let alone be the rock around which a more united European defense could congeal. I have to say, I'm still pretty skeptical about that. I hope somebody will talk me out of it and tell me that the Germans are really ready for the long haul. 
help me. I mean, this war, the full-scale invasion, was a really turning point for Germany and its Eastern policy. And I think that all the changes need some time, you know. So here, probably, we also expect faster changes and more changes and quicker responses but i think that we still need time but generally speaking i think that the kind of mental change already was made in germany but still it needs to be more concrete in action but this needs some time i guess and you are probably aware that we are facing elections in european union to the european parliament and uh, Germany is also facing a lot of internal problems like huge increase in opinion pool of rights, men's and parties. Uh, so it, of course, makes things more and more complicated somehow because you can imagine that EU response to this war is very costly and nobody likes to pay. So it's always, you know, kind of complicated how to communicate all these changes to, to your society society, not to losing support and so on and so on. Anyway, I think that there are, of course, symptoms of change, but of course, I, I can imagine that some could expect much more from Germany and maybe Daniel would say something completely different, but I wouldn't criticize Germany only because I still appreciate that they made a kind of change in their perception of this threat coming from Russia. Well, I've been pretty critical of Germany and uh, I continue doing that on a regular basis, but giving credit where it's due, I see the change in Germany, but I'm still not sure whether it is 180 degrees. I don't think it is. Maybe it's like 90, 90 degrees. It's still something, but far, far too little. And, and I'm still not pretty convinced if it is genuine long-term change or just unfortunate accident on this way ahead. We'll see. I, I am not convinced. Um, now, there are several problems with Germany. Some of them could be solved if Germany is pulled whichever choose. But, but I think that even if, if this change is not genuine, then we can bridge the gap if we are quite creative. So if Germany is not keen on, on military spending and, and building defense industry, then, then I don't know. Buy weapons for Ukraine on the international market, uh, help the others buy weapons for, for Ukraine, invest in the production capacity in other EU member states, be more vocal in terms of financial support for uh, for Ukraine and, and then the recovery needs. You know, all of these are important for, for Ukraine. So if Germany is really not keen on this hard military stuff then then let it be a vocal player on in, in the other sectors of, of the assistance now the other problem the, the second problem is i think it's a personal thing with chancellor schultz so chancellor schultz believes he shall not move forward uh, unless the United States steps in as well. So uh, Chancellor Schultz sees himself on a pair with President Biden. And, and we saw it with tanks. And, and now we see it uh, with the long-range weapons, so Taurus missiles. Uh, what Chancellor Schultz says is, I won't do it unless President Biden sends the long-range American weapons to Ukraine. So I, I think here is a problem. And here is a role for the American administration to tell our German friends that this is not what leadership means. If you want want to be a leader, you go first and you don't wait for the others. Yes, you, you don't have to have a green light from Washington to, to do what is necessary. And, and then maybe, maybe this will 
work wonders at some point. I, I don't know, but, but this is something to, to explore, definitely. If I may, very briefly here on the long-range missiles, and I believe the tanks too, it's not even about going first. The Brits went first, and the French did too. So the Germans just have to follow through with it, and they just use the excuse of Biden's fear of escalation, don't they? Well, I agree. Then we, at least our German friends, they go into this technique technicalities and try to, to work it out somehow in their favor. I remember the discussion about tanks, the first discussion at the very beginning of the war, when the Germans are saying, oh, okay, we won't send tanks unless the, the United States do it. And then the Poles are saying, but we have already done it. We sent our tanks. Oh, no, but these are post-Soviet tanks. We have the modern ones. We cannot do it unless the United States does it. So, you know, this is a completely ridiculous discussion, but it is there. And we have problems with convincing Chancellor Scholz. And he always points to President Biden that that he needs to move first. So I, I think this pushing or pulling the Germans, as seen from Washington, could be something definitely worth exploring much more. Yes, we try to tell the Biden administration that every day, but so far we haven't succeeded in two years. I want to ask, because there's so many unknown elements about the transatlantic relationship in the context of the elections, and your report is focused on the EU. So let's take for a moment the United States out of the equation and look at what the Europeans are doing on their own and assess that. And you've done so brilliantly with your report. And I want to ask you something specifically on that. So for our heavily non-EU based audience, the EU foreign and defense policy is like NATO unanimity based. And we've had a long discussion now within the EU whether we should drop unanimity for simplified supermajority, more than 50% to not complicate with, with details. And the discussion is being amplified in the context of Ukraine and specifically, of course, the obvious example that Yolanta mentioned earlier with Hungary having now a long history within the EU of blocking or trying to block either sanctions to Russia or Ukraine getting closer to the EU. And we see that in NATO as well. Of course, we know that that Hungary is not the only case, it's more nuanced, and there's a lot of countries that on different occasions block different things or increase other things, just to name another example. During the full-scale invasion, Austria has increased its dependency on Russian energy from 80-something percent to now 98 percent. So these are some of the problems we're having. And in your report, you're arguing that the abandonment of unanimity in favor of a supermajority, I believe, could block the prospects of EU accession for Ukraine, and not only, but we're looking at Ukraine. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and for our audience, what the costs and the benefits would be in your analysis of really shifting gears and changing the decision-making process when it comes to EU foreign and security policy in the context of Ukraine? Well, this discussion about EU reform, especially the voting system in the Council. It's not new, actually. We discussed about it for a long time already. We discussed this topic after Brexit referendum and so on and so on. And now, especially in the context of enlargement, not only Ukraine, but also other uh, Balkan states and other candidate states that we have together more than potentially 35 uh, members of the European Union. Some countries argue, especially Germany and France, that we need to qualified majority voting actually in 
every policy of the European Union. It's good to say that 80% of legislation today is adopted by qualified majority, but uh, this foreign policy and security policy is considered as a very sensitive topic, especially for small countries like Cyprus, Bulgaria, Greece. This veto right is considered as a very important element in negotiations in other also policy fields, you know. Having this veto right is the only sometimes way to influence decision-making process in the European Union. So, frankly speaking, and actually following this discussion about EU reform and voting especially for months already and now, I don't see much space for this kind of reform. I see still many countries opposing this idea, especially small countries. Recently, we had a proposal coming from Germany and Baltic states to uh, implement qualified majority voting in enlargement policy. Not for a final decision on enlargement, but on particular clusters of negotiations that would reduce using veto like 18 times on the way of enlargement because now can be used really many times with regard to every actually candidate states. And even here there were four countries against although this topic is considered as not so controversial so to say. So frankly speaking I don't see much space for compromise that's why I think that I mean we are actually waiting for the proposal from the European Commission on EU reform. My guess is that Commission would try rather focus on budget and policies, not necessarily so much on voting in the council and decision-making process. There are some ways to, of course, to propose changes in the voting system on the basis of so-called parallel clauses from the treaty without changing the treaty as such, because this process would be very long-lasting and damaging, I guess, for the European Union somehow. Majority of member states try to avoid the changes of the treaty. So this big debate about institutional reform, but a lot also are just against qualified majority voting in many areas, actually, in areas that are still under unanimity vote. So my prognosis is that we will not move much in this discussion in the next months. But our position, for example, and many countries argue that Lisbon Treaty is still enough to allow for accession of new countries. We already had a United Kingdom and we have institutional system that is able to adapt for new members without changing the voting system. And the recent, actually, summit on financial support for Ukraine clearly shows that if there is a need to take right decision, we are able to make this decision and to just negotiate and convince even Viktor Orban to change his opinion on some topics and allow for some decision to be made. Can I ask people's opinion of the prospects of Great Britain rejoining the Union, particularly in the wake, let's just assume for the sake of argument, that there's a Labour government that comes in. How much crow do you think the Brits would have to eat in order to rejoin the Union on terms that would be, you know, acceptable to all parties? A lot of crow. Crow for breakfast, lunch, the... Well, I'm just wondering whether the, the sort of animosity 
that accompanied the departure and had Europeans saying, oh, you're really going to regret this. And if you want to come back, <laughs> we're going to make you suffer. Whether the intervening conflict Ukraine might have sort of sobered people up. No, I see a lot of heads shaking. I think first that you would need a referendum in the UK that would show 80% want to rejoin and then they have to beg for a few years and then we could consider. <laughs> that would be pretty foolish in my judgment. Well, there is no change actually. I see much change in, in public support for integration, disintegration. I mean, it's still kind of 50-50, you know, so it's I think not enough to argue that United Kingdom should start now the process of accession. So nobody actually asked about the possibility of starting negotiations. So I guess European Union would rather react positively. I mean, even during Brexit talks, it was sending always a signal that, well, we want you to stay. It was your decision. If you want to leave, just you need to be aware that it has consequences. But if you want to join, you are always invited. I think that would be the message. Now we just see that the United Kingdom wants to rejoin some fields of cooperations, for example, in the area of space. And this is a kind of symptom of being at the same page, even not being in the same organization. And the security threat coming from Russia is an obvious impulse to strengthen cooperation between United Kingdom and the European Union. But still, I think that there is no discussion about rejoining. I want to give you both an opportunity to talk about your respective contributions to this book, to this edited volume that you, Yolanta, edited. So you both have chapters in the book on refugees and on sort of economic cooperation between EU and Ukraine, respectively. And and so I would like to invite you to tell us a little bit about your respective chapters. So, so you, Yolanta, you write about EU's refugee policy and, and and this sort of shock to the system in the in the shape and form of you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of Ukrainians who the war we all remember these early days and Poles reacting absolutely brilliantly and we were all in all Polish reaction I wonder you know how much the situation has changed two years into the conflict in terms of you know sort of Ukrainian life in Poland and integration of these refugees people going back and forth and so on and so forth any any sort of threads that you find interesting feel free to well, and you, Daniel, so you, you write about you know, EU's economic engagement with Ukraine in particular. It strikes me that we are at the point when Ukrainians have signed all kinds of sort of cooperation agreements and there is you know much more free trade than it, than it used to be. The EU obviously will be underwriting the reconstruction, is supporting Ukraine with, with the Ukraine facility in, in the years ahead. It strikes me that like the, the only possible next step is, is for Ukraine to become a full-fledged member. Yet we know that that prospect is relatively distant. So I wonder if you have any creative ideas of what else the EU can do in the coming decade or so until Ukraine becomes a full-fledged member that would make sure that Ukrainians feel that they really are part of the European family and that we sort of keep them in that European orbit. Over to you. Okay, so I can be first. Migration policy and welcoming refugees. I think this is something what we sometimes forget already discussing the support for Ukraine, but it was especially during the first months after the escalation of this war, the, actually the start of this full-scale invasion, the main effort of our society and a also visible element of this war in the Europe 
European Union. And it's good to stress that we made it very well in the European Union because we decided to use the tool that we never used before, which is called Temporary Protection Directive, giving all the Ukrainians automatic protection. So they didn't have to individually ask for protection for asylum. They got it automatically as a nation, we can say. So thanks to that, we managed to avoid overloading our asylum systems and absorb 4 million people in first weeks after invasion. We also avoided political conflict about who is responsible for protecting refugees, frontline countries only, or maybe others. So on the basis of this temporary protection directive, Ukrainians could swiftly move everywhere they wanted to move inside the European Union and ask for protection in all the member states, receiving full protection, direct access to the labor market, social care, and so on and so on. So comparing to other refugees from other regions, it was very simplified procedure and very open way to welcome people, allowing them to integrate directly after coming to the European Union. It's also good to stress that many companies offered like free transport for refugees, people offered housing and so on and so on. So you probably could hear about it. So it's was a kind of huge mobilization of society, local authorities, governments, and so on and so on. And after two years, we have actually two countries with highest number of refugees from Ukraine. The first place is now Germany, and the second is for Poland. In Germany, we have more than one million people registered under temporary protection directive. In Poland, almost one million, because of course, some Some of them just went back to Ukraine in the meantime. Some others went to the other countries like Canada, Australia, and so on and so on. So, But still, the level of integration that was possible thanks to using this directive is very high comparing to other group of refugees. At least in Poland, according to recent reports, we have around 70 people, adult refugees, working on the Polish... It's a little bit less optimistic when it comes to education and housing because we have generally some problems with housing but still because prices went up and due to pandemic solutions so to say in Ukraine like only 50% of students actually Ukrainian students participate in Polish education system the others use the online system in Ukraine or actually don't use any system, we don't know. So we still try to research this situation. But what is interesting, every year um, European Union has to decide if we prolong this temporary directive and at least for now a decision is positive that we should keep this temporary protection directive as long as it takes. So we are certain that we should offer this protection. and But from the other hand, we also need to stress that the labor market situation is very good in the European Union. So we actually need people to work here. So it uh, enables quite swift integration, at least in this market 
So, yeah, I mean, it can be considered as a success story comparing to other crises, especially the migration crisis from 2015. But from the other hand, in my chapter of this book and report, I argue that this is not example that can be used in other cases, in the cases of other crises, because of some legal conditions, that's the first thing, and also because of social perception, that here in the Ukrainian case, we have a strong support from European public for welcoming refugees, for supporting Ukraine. In other crises, we usually experience kind of securitization of migration, and this was rather barrier in implementing all the programs for refugees. So this is a very positive example. But of course, we discuss if we have now double standards for refugees in different countries. A bit on financial assistance and economic issues, because you asked it. So we usually focus, you know, on tanks, rockets, ammunition, etc. We focus on, on migration, as Yolanta mentioned. But then you have to pay the soldiers, their wives and, they, and their children. You have to pay the firefighters. You have to pay the rescuers. You have to pay all these people that keep the, the country, Ukraine, the administration running. So this is something that we've really done positively in Europe as such. We started late. That's that's true. Indeed, I must admit that in this respect, United States were the first ones. There was this problem with EU uh, bureaucracy to get 27 countries behind the table and get their approval for the money to Ukraine. I am a bit critical what the European Union has been doing in this respect because, you know, if, if you are a country at war, you need rather grants, not loans. Uh, so this is something that uh, through the Biden administration has, has done. The European Union, not necessarily. We focus mostly on preferential loans, but they are still loans. The problem is that it would take a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of changing different technical issues in, in the European Union. I mean, before we had done it, it would make no sense. So, so okay, at least the money is there. We catched up and at the moment, Europe is the biggest financial contributor to Ukraine. So we, we surpassed the threshold that the United States has set. So we are now the, the, the biggest contributor. And of course, I, I think we are in the driving seat in terms of reconstruction, pretty much engaged in planning and advising the Ukrainians how to do it. Here, I think I, I'm trying to come to the key, key message, which is uh, the there won't be any reconstruction, any serious reconstruction, unless we do have security in place. So we won't be talking about any long-term reconstruction if we do not have security guarantees for Ukraine. That's the ultimate question. And unfortunately here, be it the European Union or the United States, we have been really for these two years kicking the can down the road, not willing to stand up to the challenge and not willing to make difficult decisions. There is still some time to do it. Okay, the war is ongoing so so i understand why we are unwilling to to discuss the um the security guarantees we are discussing now security commitments g7 declarations bilateral deals the us ukrainian deal being one of them i think it will be signed somewhere around the nato summit in washington to send the the signals and the positive message to the ukrainians but but the these commitments will not replace the guarantees just 
step in the right direction, but one step and we need much more of them. So without the security guarantees, we won't be really engaged in the, in the reconstruction. At this, again, I'm, I, I've been trying, we've come with Yolanta several times already to, to the US, trying to deliver this message that there is a need to work hand in hand, the European Union and the United States, NATO and European Union hand in hand again, in order to really solve the problem. We can, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Europe can handle it financially, but then in terms of security guarantees, we, we won't really do it without the United States engagement. And now how we can do it and when we can do it is, of course, under another question. I know it's not going to be decided during the next NATO summit Washington because there's still no consensus within NATO. I would say that NATO membership is the cheapest option, the, the most stabilizing option. But if you do not have political will, there is there is little you can do. I mean, I, I fully understand how democracy works in the States and, and, and in Europe. We, got, we face the same problems in Europe, but there is still no consensus. And shortly back to the economic integration and, and the European Union, and you are right that there is very little between now and the EU membership for Ukraine. Very, very, very little. But it doesn't mean that, that the EU membership for Ukraine will come quickly. It won't. It is a long and painful process and it requires a lot of adjustments on the Ukrainian side, which are not always political or technical, but require a significant amount of money, which is not there. I mean, there are priorities now in Ukraine. These priorities are buying weapons, not necessarily you know, adjusting to some um, bureaucratic rules of the, of, of the European Union. Um, this will come later on. Um, so I, I think the focus will be on the on defense now, um, security and defense, and, and, and then on reconstruction. And, and somewhere down this road, we will we will be helping Ukraine uh, with these adjustments and, and bringing them closer to the to the EU market. Now, if you look basically at the EU EU Ukrainian trade, uh, then you see that um, there is little to be gained. I mean, at the moment, because Ukraine is pretty much uh, integrated with the EU market, even bringing Ukraine to the Union would bring little in terms of more trade and essentially more money, which means that the focus now should be actually to help Ukraine rebuild its own economy and then uh, help it integrate with the world markets. And I'm talking about transit routes from Ukraine to the third markets in, in Asia, in Africa, not only and not always grain, but a lot of different products. Uh, so I would again point to the uh, to the Black Sea. We, we, we prepared a longer policy paper uh, last year on, on this issue at PISM. We will find that on our website if you want. Uh, so it is how to unblock the Black Sea. It is unblocked for a moment now, but I would expect Russia to push back again. I don't see Putin and I don't see Russia really letting it go just like that. But it is extremely important for Ukraine because this is something that brings money for Ukraine. The Ukrainian economy is heavily dependent on export. So if you have the discussion in the United States and, and you have it, we have it in Europe as well. So if there is this discussion on, on how to finance the war effort of Ukraine, how much money does Ukraine need? Need. That's part of the discussion. So Russia is actually doing everything to raise the cost of our assistance to Ukraine. If you are talking about the assistance, then let's focus on the Black Sea and let's, let, let's make sure that this trade corridor is unblocked. And then we will actually help ourselves. So the cost of helping Ukraine would essentially go down for ourselves. Very quickly before we let you go, one quick question from me to you, Daniel, because you mentioned the industrial base and also how key this is to solving some of the 
more imminent issues before we can talk about long-term integration, reconstruction, etc. So let's start from the pessimistic premise that we will not see U.S. military aid for Ukraine in the coming months. We can discuss of whether that's possible or not, but just for this premise. Then the EU has several options to be able to help Ukraine keep the line where it is and decrease the cost of the war overall. One would be quickly, and you mentioned this takes time, reshuffling and increasing the production at home. And the other one would be to buy ammunition from abroad, mostly the United States. So if you look at the next three months, four or five months with this premise, what do you think the outcome will be? either or or a combination of them? Well, it, it depends on the situation on the front line because, you know, you need the ammunition to keep the front line. But on the other hand, you need air defense to keep the enterprises running. And I mean, I know they are closely intertwined, but, but at some point, these make up for different issues. So if you try, I'm, I'm not a fan of that kind of scenario, but I, I understand that there are people who are in favor of that. So if you are attempting to freeze the conflict, then of course we will see the intensity of the shelling on the front line going down. But this does not automatically imply that the Russian rockets would not be falling on the Ukrainian cities. Yeah, so the, the situation on the front line is one thing, but what's the situation over Lviv, Kiev, etc.? That's that's a different issue. I would expect Russians to continue with that. So priority would definitely be air defense to protect the biggest cities, the civilian population, and to keep the enterprises running. And then, of course, depending on the situation on the front line, shells, ammunition, etc., to help the Ukrainian army sustain the front line, or I don't know, trying to attempt to break the line. But I think it's not. You, you ask about three to six months, so it is mid. mid mid-24, I don't expect the Ukrainian army to go full on the offensive in mid-24. But the needs to protect the cities and to protect the enterprises, that's of utmost importance. It's not only because of the military reasons, but even if you try to look at it from the economic perspective, the more you save now, the less is there to rebuild in future. So actually the proper reconstruction starts somewhere in, in future, but actually the reconstruction starts today from our defense and from protecting the cities and the enterprises. Daniel Czoligowski, Yolanta Szymańska, thank you so much for joining us on the Eastern Front. From me, Dalibor Rohacz. And me, Giselle Donnelly. And Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter, X, using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.